Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us after a little bit of a, a, some time off. Glad to be back with you as we continue through the Gospel of Luke, Luke this week, late in the fifth chapter. Try to get all those words out at the same time. We're in the fifth chapter, verse 27, and we, we see a couple of... Um, I don't know if we'll get to all three of the stories today, but sometimes the gospel chunks things together, and we mentioned that Luke does that. Uh, Mark tends to sandwich them. Luke sort of puts them together, and and we have that happening here. So whether we get to all three stories today or whether we finish up tomorrow, just kind of pay attention that that's happening. We'll jump into the first one here, then we'll unpack it here when we're done. Uh, Verse 27, after this, he went out, saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up, left everything, and followed Jesus. Then Levi gave a great banquet for him in his house. And there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. An an interesting story. Just a a couple of things in the way of background here. Levi, we also know as Matthew. Um, So when you hear the character Matthew, the tax collector, uh, also is known by the name Levi. And more importantly, the nature of tax collector in Jesus' day is a pretty lonely profession. Um, you know, we in our day and age still make jokes perhaps about the IRS or the tax people. But in Jesus' day, uh, a tax person was typically a Jew who kind of worked under Roman authority. So they had, they had the authority of the Romans to kind of make life a little rough on people. And the general way that worked is that the tax collector could impose some taxes. There was a certain amount they had to collect. And within reason, or at least I should say up to a point, the Romans would typically look the other way if the tax collector padded their pockets a little bit. So they they really were thought of by the people not only as probably crooked, but maybe worse as colluding or working with the Romans, supporting the Romans. So they were not they were not well liked. They were not accepted. They were. When someone said tax collector, it was often an insult, and the the um, the direct impression, Michael, was that this person was not a good person. Yeah. So we, like you said, Clint, um, only have I think vestiges of this image because we don't have the idea of traitor that there would be mm-hmm. in someone in the ancient world. Yeah, that's world a good word for it. Being. Uh, you know, essentially employed by a foreign adversary to extract money from you and your family. And the way that those individuals made money was to abuse the power that they had been given and to keep extra for themselves. So there there was a, a multiple levels of sort of betrayal in this relationship. And the fact that Luke presents this story as a nexus moment, sort of a combining of the Pharisees and the scribes, 
um, with this idea of the tax collectors and sinners. Note tax collectors and sinners. So this kind of language points us immediately to this idea that Luke is showing us that there's a lot of crossover happening. You've got different people groups who shouldn't be together being together. Uh, I do think it's interesting that this is happening at a meal and you know commentators uh, point out that there may be some more to the structure of this meal than is immediately apparent to us that there's some ancient traditions about the beginning part of the meal and the latter part of the meal and the beginning part of the meal may look more like a pharisaical type meal and the latter part may look more like a more Hellenistic Greek type meal and that that is also included in Luke or by Luke here to try to point us towards a, a further blending or or kind of expansive vision of the kind of inclusion which is intended by Jesus Christ and his teaching here. But no matter how deep you want to go down that rabbit trail, Clint, I think that there's a an amazing connection happening here of both calling a person who shouldn't be called in the midst of a gathering of people who are unlikely to enjoy being together. And all of this happening because of Jesus Christ and his larger vision of what it means to serve. And I think there's really, this is summarized by Jesus's final words in 31. Those who are well have no need of a physician. Those who are sick, I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The setting demonstrates the truth of Jesus's point. The reason that this is happening with all of this kind of different diversity, I think, demonstrates what Luke wants us to see, that Jesus is living out what Jesus is teaching. Yeah, remember that Luke is very uh, open and very sensitive to the outsider, and we see it here. You know, uh, first of all, it's a note of... It, it's a note of accuracy toward the tax collector that who comes to a party at a tax collector's house, other tax collectors, right? And and who watches the Pharisees and scribes, they won't go in. But Jesus here, we forget how often Jesus is criticized for who he spends time with and that he's with the wrong, quote unquote, sort of people. And at some level... That's accurate. He is with the wrong sort of people. But Jesus' point is, it's those people who need him. And it's not that the righteous don't need Jesus. Um, it's that if they were righteous, then then they don't need to repent. Now, he's not saying here that the scribes and Pharisees are righteous, though they may think they are. He's saying that... Uh, God is concerned not so much with those who don't need help as with those who do. And herein, you know, Levi invites many of them to his house. So um, this is a a very common theme. It, It is surprising how often in the Gospels that the criticism leveled at Jesus is he's willing to be with people he shouldn't be with. But just very, very quickly, I think it is different than what we expect because Jesus isn't here with the underserved, with the poor, with the underprivileged. I think we get that impression that Jesus is, especially in the book of Luke, seeking out the poor, the homeless, those disenfranchised individuals. Let's be clear. Tax collectors were among the richest of their people group because of their job. They were loathed because of how they got their money, not the fact that they had it. 
And I think that it is striking here that Jesus is in a room of people who have done pretty well monetarily at the expense of their reputation, their family. You know, what is off about this encounter is that Jesus is hanging out with people who are enriching themselves at Jesus's people's own expense. That's that's the scandalous nature of this text, is that Jesus, when he takes sinner seriously, he takes sinner seriously. He he includes the people who have done really well at the expense of other people, and he says that he's for them. I, I think, you know, many of us would be offended at this. If the if the people who have gotten their wealth through ill-gotten means are the people who Jesus is sitting with, I, I think we too would struggle with an image like this. This is a difficult story. Yeah, I I think especially if this is one of those stories where the front and the back have to stay together, I think, right, Michael? Because you've got verse 28, that Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. And And I think that bridge matters, that Levi, and this is this would be appealing to Luke, that Levi turned away from his wealth to follow Jesus, and maybe at some level the implication is mm-hmm. he then invites others who he believe may believes may need to have the same opportunity or the same invitation. Um, but yes, it it is it is always humbling to be reminded that Jesus cares about people that you don't care about. And Jesus loves people that you don't love. Uh, that is, right. that is a struggle. And here, the Pharisees, um, unfortunately, they haven't quite gotten there yet. They, they, their response is to sort of criticize Jesus, which is the theme of these right. stories. The, the and we go into the next story, and we see it again, uh, verse thirty-three here. Then they said to him, John's disciples, like the disciples of the Pharisees, frequently fast and pray but your disciples eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you cannot make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece of new garment and sews it on an old garment, otherwise the new will be torn and the piece the otherwise the new will be torn and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins destroyed. But the new wine must be put in fresh skins. And no one after drinking old wine desires the new, but says the old is good. Um, Jesus says something like this in all of the Gospels. The, The idea here really is one of new life of celebration um, the question is, why don't your disciples have this f- practice of fasting, of withholding, of self-denial? And Jesus says, you know, there's a time for that, but the time for that is not now in celebrating the coming of the Messiah. That's the back text here. It's not said explicitly. But Jesus says, when the bridegroom is is at the wedding, it's a feast. It's a party. That's not the time for fasting and grieving and mourning. And then he goes on to these very short parables, uh, the garment and the wineskin, which we see in other Gospels, and we don't see them here significantly differently. Um, You wouldn't put a piece of new fabric that hasn't shrunk yet and hasn't gone through that cycle 
on old clothing or it would tear it when it shrank. You wouldn't put new wine in an old skin because the old skin would have already been stretched. And when the new wine tried to stretch it further as it fermented, it would burst the skin. So new wine goes in new skins. What's fascinating, Michael, is that only Luke adds this this very interesting verse at the end. No one drinking the old wine desires new, but says the old is good. And I think this does something to the text that we don't expect. In other words, we tend to read this in the other Gospels as saying, you can't put the new faith into your old life. You can't just take your old life and add Jesus to it without changing it. It takes a new life to contain the new gospel. But here, I think, that if the commentators can be trusted, and I, and I assume they can, the message is just the opposite, that old wine, the old way, the old purpose of God is coming through, and that the scribes and Pharisees have actually tried to innovate and change and do new things that are less palatable, less appealing, less right, less correct than the old way. The old is good. And by old here, Jesus means, I think, the established purpose of God from the very beginning. And I, I don't know of another gospel that puts that twist on it. Luke um, Luke takes it a different direction here. I, I think a through line that we could see in this entire section we've been over today is Jesus is consistently making the point, which is being lost on the Pharisees, that he is accomplishing God's purpose that has been in existence for this whole time, for the, the whole era that God has been planning this effort, that Jesus is the fulfillment would be the theological language. And the Pharisees, they don't understand how these disciples could be with this teacher and not practicing the stuff that disciples are expected pr to practice. The idea is if you're a fervent Jew, if you're a fervent religious person, you should be doing these things. And Jesus's point is, hey, they're not going to participate in these things because they're enjoying God's Messiah. They're enjoying God's Savior while he's here. Where the Pharisees miss the point, in other words, is they miss the point that Jesus has changed everything. The landscape is now fundamentally different, is what Luke wants us to see. The Pharisees don't see that right now. They're looking at Jesus, and really, they're not hostile at this point, really, like we're going to see. At this point in the story, the, the Pharisees are really puzzled. They're bewildered why a religious teacher would speak this way, act this way, allow this kind of behavior amongst his disciples, because they're thinking uh, in their own old frame. They're kind of bringing their own uh, impressions and the way that things have been expected into this conversation. What Jesus demands is instead for them to look back and see, no, that old story, God's old intention is different than what we expected. And if you knew that, then that would be good enough. But mm -hmm. they don't. They, they make assumptions about what they do and don't know. And because they're wrong, this is Luke's point, I think, because they're wrong on what they're expecting, they don't see Jesus for who he is. I think we bring a bias with us that tends to celebrate the new. And in other Gospels, I think perhaps that's even supported. But here... I think it's very interesting. Jesus says, you know, the new 
piece of fabric will not match the old. It is the new that is out of step with what God has always intended. And he is, I think, inferring that it is the Pharisees that are doing something new. With the, with the legalism, with the judgmentalism, they are the ones who are missing what God has always been about. And, and, and in Luke, we see Jesus not so much doing a new thing as reverting to the original thing. And I, I think, you know, we can read this and think that Jesus would be the one doing the new stuff, but I don't think that's how Luke wants us to see it. If you, if you were in Matthew, yeah, maybe, but not, but not here. I, I think Luke wants it to be clear that Jesus is the one connected to the old thing and the Pharisees have missed, they've been on the wrong path and, and they're not helping. So if if you've got your Bible out, you might see, you know, my Bible here has a, a little footnote here that makes note of the fact that 39 is translated slightly differently in some manuscripts, and then in other ancient manuscripts, it's uh, not included at all. That mm-hmm. Now, clearly the NIV, which is the translation, I, or no, sorry, NRSV, which is the translation we have in front of us, it... Uh, includes this because the they believe that there's enough of those original documents to support this inclusion. But your point, Clint, I think is only strengthened by that to say that even some of those uh, folks who were transcribing the Bible to give us the Bible are aware of how this story is told a little differently in the other Gospels, and it makes sense that they might have thought, not sure why this is there. And so the fact that they've worked to preserve what is a distinctive in Luke I think is really interesting because— it helps us learn, I think, at a very much deeper level that even the disciples, when they heard Jesus, they heard multiple levels of meaning and teaching, and that that shows up in their in their tellings of those stories. You know, here Luke is able to say, uh, you know, that there's a meaning from this wineskin story that that maybe that Matthew's not emphasizing, and I think that's a beautiful kind of thing that you can discover in the midst of Bible study. That sometimes there's more there. And and you can plumb a lot as you go. Yeah, I want to be I want to be very careful with this because I, I I don't want to suggest that we can read whatever version we like. But it's interesting that this exact text in another gospel can sort of be read to say that Jesus comes to do a new thing and that it takes a new life to contain the new thing. But when you read it in Luke, it is, you know, the old wine is good, or some translations say better, and new wine is not good. I mean, mean, that continues to be true today. If if those who know something about wine, old tends to be better. And that idea here that Jesus is preserving something good that others have tried to change into something new— and, or something different, at least. And it's fascinating that depending which gospel you read and how you read it, both of those messages, I would say equally true if properly understood, come through Jesus' words. So I, I think Luke has given us something to think about here by putting the spin on this. 
My final comment here is we sometimes um, we fail to keep in mind some of the original first-generation Christian struggles. And one of those struggles is that the faith is being born and growing in a time in which there's real significant rivalry and questions and struggle between this cultural really battle between Hellenism or, you know, Roman culture and Jewish culture. There's this real struggle to maintain a national identity while the, this, this army's occupying and controlling your country. And there's a lot of debate happening amongst the Pharisees about how they're going to preserve their faith. And they think of that through a very structured lens. They want to keep the laws. They want to keep the observance. They want to have very, you know, very clear kind of social markers. This is what it looks like if you're a, a person of faith. And when Jesus encounters them over and over and over again, Jesus calls the Pharisees to an openness that they're uncomfortable with. He reveals God in a way that that calls them out of their their very rule, moral-focused lens into a radically different lens, and it happens consistently. And I think that when we see this story, this idea of the old, I think we can see Jesus making the argument that the Pharisees have have created a new order. They've created a new understanding of faith, and that he is calling them to a deeper identity. And we'll see that teased out. We don't need to say much more about that. But what Luke has done here makes sense in the culture in which the both he lives and then the the earliest church and their own understandings of the struggle and and I think it's important we know that as we go. Yeah, and just you know there's not always time to get everything that's in here but just quickly I want to leave with uh, make sure that we correct on the other side as well cuz in on a day when we have a story about a party and then Jesus' people not fasting and withdrawing from some of the fun stuff of life. It's worth saying that Jesus doesn't say they don't need to do that. He says there will be a time for that, and that's not now. Luke is not suggesting that disciples or that discipleship is all fun stuff and is not ever aesthetic and, and... withdrawing from the world and the pleasures. He's not saying there's no place for fasting and for sacrifice. He He's saying that in the midst of Jesus being present, it's not that time. But he's not denying that there is a time, as Jesus says himself there. So um, in a modern world, we'd want to make sure we're probably more likely to hear that the Pharisees struggled with, right. you mean we don't do this? We probably struggle with why would we? Jesus doesn't say we're off the hook for those kind of things. He simply says that it's not that time for the disciples. So just a a little bit of make sure we stay in the middle of the text, I think. That's a helpful word. Uh, Thanks for being with us. Uh, Definitely give this video a like on your way out. That helps people find it later when they're doing their own study. Subscribe for more videos like this, and we will see you tomorrow as we start Luke chapter 6. Thanks, everybody.